Not the Joe Cocker version on the Wonder Years, but the Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts version. Let's go back in time. awesome. I saw seven of you singing along. That was awesome. You see, we do need friends, don't we? And whether we sing that song or we read the scriptures, it is evident that we were made to be in community with each other. You know, Paul concludes his final words in Colossians with a whole list of friends. And if you're like me, you've gone through that and you kind of get to this part and you're just kind of like, uh, who is all these names? I can't pronounce them. They're Greek to me. And in fact, we kind of miss why this is such an important way to end the book of Colossians. He's going to give a long shout out to friends who have sustained him. And in fact, these are the guys in his life that he did life with. And in fact, we know that Paul isn't shy about naming people, so why these eight people? Seven have pretty good stories. One, not so good. And in fact, each of them, I believe, represent a character quality in the Christian life that we ought to have in our lives. I remember when I was at a Promise Keeper event in Boulder, Colorado. It was the first time they went to the stadium back in the 90s. I remember Howard Hendricks said, every man needs these three kinds of relationships. Well, in a way, these are the relationships that have sustained Paul. In fact, if you go to Romans 16, he names 26 different people. And if you go through the entire book of Acts, there's over 100 people Paul names, but he chooses these eight for this context. Well, for the final time in the book of Colossians, we're going to stand together and we're going to read this passage. So if you'd stand with me in Romans... Uh, in in uh, Colossians chapter 4, starting with verse 7, we'll read through verse 18. I want to pause here for just a moment. I don't know if you were here when we began this. We started this study in September. And it's kind of fun when you actually teach through an entire book and um, you were here for every message. Is there anybody besides me who was here for every message in the book of Colossians? Will was back there. Rocky? All right, so we'll quiz you at the end for the final. And uh, it's a great ending to the book of Colossians. It starts in verse 7. As to all my affairs, 
Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, your, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Verse 11, and also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Herapolis. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also Demas, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. 18, verse 18, I, Paul, write the greetings with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Heavenly Father, would you teach us today? May the messenger not confuse the message in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we all need friends. So let's look at Paul's companions. I've given you a little chart you can fill out. We'll look at the context, and there's a character quality or a, a role that each of these people played. So let's first of all look at the characters. Some have said this is the text that talks about men who stayed, prayed, or strayed, and we'll see which one uh, is that strain one. The first one is Tychicus. Sounds like something you get like Lyme's disease. Um, <laughs> And I want to just say that Tychicus uh, was a beloved brother, it says in the text, a faithful minister and a fellow servant. And the idea is, I'll let you write the word in, he had a faithful heart, a faithful heart if you're kind of filling in your chart today. His name means fortuitous or fortunate, and he did have that servant's heart. He's mentioned only five times in the New Testament, and the interesting thing is here, if you want to study the book of Colossians, you better know the book of Acts, so I'm going to not take you there, I'll just give you the references, but you, you, to fill in these biographies, you have to go to several other places. Paul first meets this guy in Ephesus, and uh, he's been at this writing with Paul over four years. Now, we know the last couple years, Paul's where? In prison, so this is a kind of friend who sticks with you, even if you're in prison, who... Uh, he had to visit him. Now, he's going to deliver something. What is it, according to the text we just wrote? He's going to deliver this letter back to the church of Colossae. So he's riding in prison. Tychicus is the guy who's going to deliver Colossians. We think he delivers Ephesians. And he probably uh, delivers the book of Philemon uh, as well. And so this trip is no longer deal. Now, I was going to have a little map up there and show you all the different directions, but the history majors would like it. The rest of you go, who cares? It's just a long way. Let me just give you a little bit of Rome to Colossae. Then he'd have to cross Italy on foot. Then he sails across the Adriatic Sea. Then he traverses Greek, Greece on foot, sails across the Aegean Sea to get the coast of Asia Minor. And after that, he faced a, a, nearly a journey of over 100 miles to get to Colossae. And he's entrusted with delivering these three inspired books of the Bible. He, in a word, is trustworthy. Who's the person in your life who plays that trustworthy role? That person who, if you had something really important to deliver, a message, who would you rely on? I'm going to suggest to you that there are some people in this church who play that role. And as I go through each one of these people, I'm trying not to embarrass all of you because there's not enough of, there's too many, few names and too many of you. But I got to tell you somebody who is trustworthy in this church, and his name's Larry Winningham. He's in charge of the finances of our church, and he is rock solid. 
Now, I don't want anybody to feel left out if I don't mention your name, because Larry, your new name is Tychicus, all right? <laughs> How's it going, Tick? All right. The, the next is, and by the way, I won't pick somebody for all of these. Uh, Onesimus is the next one we see in verse 9. Now, we should know something about Onesimus because our own Pastor John Nungester preached on the book of Philemon uh, a few months ago. And so he was this fugitive who came to Christ. He's that runaway slave, remember, who was described in the book of Philemon. He had fled to Rome, and he found Christ through Paul's evangelism. And he's the one who's now following Christ, and he's now having to seek restitution with his owner, his former owner. And Paul has encouraged Philemon to forgive him and to welcome him back as a brother in Christ. And Paul uses this kind of play on words that John did so well. I won't give you the Greek words, but one, one meaning useless, and now you're useful. And uh, he went from useless to useful. And the great part about Onesimus, if you're filling in your chart, is he has a forgiven past. He has a forgiven past. And the great news in the Christian life is that 2 Corinthians 5.17 is that we're all new creatures in Christ. Galatians 3.28, there's no slaves at the cross. And so that idea of forgiveness, you're going to see this come up again with another person that Paul forgives. And so who is that Onesimus person? Now, that's one I'm not actually going to call out any of you uh, today on. But who is that person you may need to forgive? That's that person that maybe wronged you that you need to reach out to. You know that there was a, a strained relationship. A few weeks ago, in order to be held accountable to you, I did an unadvised thing and said during Psalm 51:17 that I too had to make a phone call. Do you know how nerve-wracking that is to say that in front of 200 people and then just waiting for someone to ask you, well, did you do it, Pastor? Well, I did call the guy on Monday morning, and it was wonderful. I was so glad because it had been three years of not talking to each other. And I just said, hey, um, I just didn't like the way I handled myself when you guys left the church, and I was wrong. Would you forgive me? And as I was saying that, he was trying to interrupt me and say, no, no, I didn't handle it very well. I internalized all this stuff. I got mad, and I just gave you the silent treatment. It doesn't always go that way, does it? When you have to forgive someone, you own your stuff, and oftentimes they never own their stuff. But I got to tell you once again that if there's someone who you need to forgive, it's awesome when you can forgive the past where you can let go of the past. And Philemon did that with Onesimus. The third one is Aristarchus. Aristarchus. Now, he's a, he's a Jewish believer, and like many of the Jews during that time, they are dispersed because of the persecution going on in Rome. He's a, a native of Thessalonica. You can check that out in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, and Acts chapter 27, verse 2. And you remember, he first appears on Paul's first missionary journey in the book of Acts, back in Acts 19. And he's with Paul in Ephesus, that three-year ministry in Ephesus. And uh, that's when Paul, you know, the rioting mobs come in, and, and he's recognized as one of Paul's companions in Acts 19, verse 29. He comes back with Paul uh, on the return voyage to Jerusalem, and on his voyage to Rome, he possibly stays with Paul. And he calls him, a, what in, in the text there, a fellow prisoner... And the question is whether he was actually in prison with Paul or he has like these visiting duties. Remember, if you were in prison in those days, you had to feed yourself. You had to have benefactors who would provide you food. Otherwise, it was pretty slim pickings. And so that word fellow prisoner, this Greek word is one caught with a spear. And it refers to captives or prisoners. And whether he was an actual prisoner or he was just linked with Paul to provide for him while he was in prison, it's not clear. But the bottom line is here's a guy who gives up his life's journey and goals to stand by him, to, to walk with uh, Paul and to be a minister. And he was focused and he was there. He was there for Paul. We talk about being in the moment, being present for one another. And I got to tell you, I'm going to mention their names a couple of times here. 
But with all the, the hoopla of our new pastor saying yes and he's coming and, and all the stuff we've talked about, I, I, hope you don't real, I hope you realize that there's been some other staff here who've carried this ball for us as a, as a church for over two and a half years. We've talked a lot about the elders and what they've done in the search, but some of the unsung heroes are, are sitting in this room, and one of them sitting right there, and his name's Chad. And, and the other one is sitting in the back of the room, and his name's John. And another one is sitting over there with the children's every week, and her name's Carolyn. And another one is Nancy, and I, I, is Nancy here? I saw her husband. Nancy, who's usually there and answers more phone calls and handles more things, and only God knows for sure what would happen if she left, because we'd be in big trouble. And, yes. And I could go on and on, and where's Dustin? Is he somewhere out here? Dustin's right there. And he's working our junior hires. God bless him. No, no, just kidding. And there's Blythe right there who also does administration and works uh, with our students in junior high in particular. And, yes. And there's Javier who you never see, but his work is done during the course of the week, and he's our custodian, and he's awesome. And the problem with going through all these names is you forget one, but remember... You know, Carolyn's still looking for somebody, and Cindy Vanis is subbing for us even to this day, helping out in our children's ministry as well. That's your staff. And there's someone you don't even know, but Larry delegates to a gal named Lisa, who's only here on Tuesdays, but she kind of writes the checks, which all of us appreciate very, very much. You see, the bottom line is with those people together, they have been self-sacrificing the entire staff kind of standing beside one another during this time of transition. Well, the fourth one is Mark, and he is the restored brother. Now, if you remember the story of John Mark, he's that young guy. He had a very different experience with Paul initially. He's uh, the companion uh, of Paul and Barnabas on their first trip, and he's Barnabas' cousin, but he kind of uh, opts out towards the end. If you read Acts 13, 13, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, this is the John Mark we're talking about, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, most commentators say he was a deserter. He, he was too immature. He, he got cross-threaded with Paul. Just side note, Paul wouldn't have been the easiest travel companion. Think of the most type A driven personality who has to always be right. And that's what it might have been like to travel with Paul. That's why I'm pretty sure Barnabas was a middleborn, you know, because I'm pretty sure Barnabas was just going with the flow because he was hanging out with Paul. But he stiffened his spine, and when he said, no, John Mark's going to go with us, Paul said, no way. Barnabas said, yes way. Paul said, no way. Forget it. Barnabas says, well, do you want to find somebody else to travel with? Are you threatening me? Barnabas said, I'm not threatening you, but John Mark is going to go. Paul says, I don't think so over my dead body. And Barnabas whispered under breath, yeah, well, I can arrange for that. <laughs> no, remember, Barnabas is the son of encouragement, right? And they part ways, and Barnabas goes off with John Mark, and Paul then hooks up, not hooks up with, that's a bad term in today's culture. <laughs> Paul uh, uh, joins with Silas, right? And so Barnabas uh, stood up to Paul, and John Mark is kind of the collateral damage. And we don't even know the story about why he pulled out or why he went back. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he was young. We don't know. But thankfully, isn't it great that the story doesn't end there? Because by the time you get to this study in Colossians, Mark, um, John Mark has been restored with Paul. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul tells Timothy to pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for his service. So even though he was rejected in his young career, later in life he becomes very useful to Paul. And just a sidelight, those of you who invest in young people, let's remind ourselves the jury is out during, you know, they're young, they're going to make mistakes. I've probably had 50 different interns over 34 years of ministry. 
And sometimes you get in here and you go, oh my goodness, this is going to be a project. Is this a ministry or a minister? And sometimes it, they just drain you of everything you, you have. But I've also had interns where they started slow, but then became the most unbelievable staff people. I think that's what John Mark is. He, he had a kind of a slow start, but Paul says, welcome him back. Welcome him back, and don't hold his past against him. Give him a second chance. So John Mark represents that guy who's that restored brother or the, the guy with the second chance. And probably all of us have somebody in our life that we got to, again, give a second chance for. You see that idea of forgiveness comes over twice now in our first four characters. That you, If you're going to have biblical friendships, it is an absent conflict. It is an absent conflict. There is going to be conflict. And the question is, how are you going to deal with that conflict? How are you going to deal with it? And so he was a reclamation project, wasn't he? So I ask you again, who do you need? Who do I need? to give a second chance to. I'm remembering the very first junior high intern that I hired. Cheryl remembers this story because we had two finalists. One was this blonde-haired Newport Beach surfer dude, really verbal, very way cool. It was 1978. And, you know, he was just, if you just said, Tim, you thought, cool. If you looked up Tim in the dictionary, it said, very, very cool, right? And then there was Jim. Jim was a little less polished. Jim was a guy who got his hands dirty. He, he as, to help pay through college, he, he rebuilt engines for people and, and was not cool, was not nearly as cool. Kind of got really nervous. In fact, when Jim spoke, he got so nervous. I mean, there was big sweat rings under his armpits, ooh, you know? And we're, we're trying to, but they're really good. We're, we're thinking one of these guys is our guy. And we're praying, we're praying. And I'm young and, you know, I'm thinking I want the cool guy. I asked Cheryl, what do you think? What do you think? Which one? She goes, oh, definitely Jim. I go, are you kidding me? Jim? Mr. Sweat Rings? Are you kidding? No, it's got to be Tim. She goes, no, honey, I, I think Jim is going to be much more solid. She goes, there's something in my spirit. I think Tim's just kind of flashy and here today, gone tomorrow. I said, nah, man, this guy is solid. He's going to be a rock star. I mean, he's going to be the guy. I mean, hundreds of junior high kids will come to this church because of Tim. And, you know, he loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. But how can we lose? They both love Jesus. And I should have known then. This was in our first year of marriage. She did something that I'll never get. She said, okay, well, as long as, you, as you've prayed about it. <laughs> so you're going with Tim? She goes, no, I still feel like it's Jim, but honey, you're the pastor. I'll support you either way. And that's all she said. That is not fair, dear. That is not fair. Oh, have you prayed about it? Of course I've prayed about it, but I want your opinion. And just sidebar, guys, we ask our wives our, their opinion, and then we go, oh, I don't want to listen to it anyway, right? <laughs> that isn't fair either. So I heard her, but I said, no, nah, I'm going to go with Tim. She said, okay. Six weeks to the day. He quits. Because I don't want to do this, you know. I don't want to be in the office. You make you know, too many rules, and these kids are geeks. And I said, What? Yeah, they're kind of weird. I'm thinking, These are the junior hires that I came to serve, and you're kind of just, I don't think so. Now, the crazy thing is, Jim didn't get the job, but he said, Would it be all right if I'd be a volunteer on your staff? on your staff anyway, and I'll work for Tim. So flash in the pans, Tim leaves after six weeks, and there's faithful Jim, who my wife called clearly. She had it called early on, and I hired him. Slow starter. Ended up becoming our junior high pastor, and then ended up working for Yugo Ministries, uh, which is one of the organizations I'm a part of. It's had a faithful 25-year ministry, but at first glance, had kind of a slow start. Well, maybe John Mark had a slow start, but he may be that, that diamond in the rough that we've got to invest in. By the way, you know that Jim Lodergan is one of those guys that just invests in young men, and maybe he has a John Mark that he's, he's, he's coaching, and we haven't even met him yet. Well, the next one is justice or Jesus in verse 11. 
How would you like, this is your only time ever mentioned in the Bible. We virtually know nothing about him, and he works in total obscurity, but he's one of the three that are fellow Jewish believers that Paul's referencing here in the text. And all we can surmise is if he was a Jewish believer, if you were a Jewish believer at that time, what was your life like? Difficult, right? Because uh, the leaders in Jerusalem are rejecting Paul's message. They're plotting to kill him. He receives all kinds of opposition on these journeys. And yet, this is a guy who comforts uh, Paul with being committed. He leaves his Jewish heritage as a Christ follower, and he's willing to take a stand right along Paul, but you heard nothing about him. This is the only time. It reminds me of a, the Chicago Tribune that ran a contest years ago about the definition the best definition of the word friend, and the, the definition that won was this definition. A friend is the one who comes in when the whole world goes out. And that's what I think justice was. He was that guy who was faithful, uh, worked in obscurity behind the scenes. No one really knows what he's been doing. I think for our church... We have seven or eight justices, and we had them stand up today. They are our deacons. They work in obscurity, and oftentimes they're only recognized when something goes south, right? When something goes wrong, a water pipe breaks, or, you know, something goes wrong in the facility, or something else happens. And I'm grateful for those of you who play the role of justice here. Number six, Epaphras. Verses 12 and 13. This is this focused prayer partner where Justice was the committed worker, Mark was the restored brother. Epaphras is this focused prayer partner. And if you see in the text here, I want to look at it again because he prays for several things. Look at that in verse 12. He's a blonde side of Jesus Christ, a, a bond slave, laboring earnestly for you in prayer. This isn't just a casual praying guy. This is a guy who agonizes. Now, I, I got to tell you, praying is hard for me. Is there any other, besides me, am I the only person that like, praying is hard? Who, is it hard for anybody else to pray? Wow, the rest of you are maybe more, I, it's hard. It's hard for me. If I pray in bed, what do I do? You know, if I try to pray sitting at the table, my mind wanders. And so, the best time for me to pray is with my wife, and we have to do it while we're physically moving. And so we prayer walk our neighborhood, we walk and talk and we pray. But this is a guy who labors over it earnestly that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. And so as he prays, I think there are several things he prays. He prays consistently, he prays earnestly, he prays personally, he prays definitely, and he prays deeply. He labors, just like Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same idea, same word, Luke chapter 22, verse 4. So this guy has some spiritual intensity. He has a prayer warrior. Who's that prayer warrior in our church? Who is that prayer person who blankets this place in prayer? I invite you every Sunday to join us for prayer at 930. And some of you say, I can't get out and do a whole lot, but I can, you can pray. And I believe that those of you who are praying for this church, it was your prayers who sustained us over these past two-plus years. Epaphras was a prayer warrior. Then we get to Luke, all right? Luke, verse 14. He's mentioned here and two times in the New Testament. Of course, he writes the book of Luke, and um, he writes the book of Acts, and uh, he's in the New Testament and Paul's prison epistles he's referenced. And according to the church fathers, uh, Eusebius and Jerome, he was born in Syria of Antioch, which means nothing to us. But the bottom line is, some people believe that he was Titus's brother. Remember the book of Titus? That they probably were brothers. He knows Paul. He knew Paul when Paul was a student, a Jewish student in Tarsus. Now, he has another career besides book writing for the Bible. What else is he? Do you remember? He's a doctor. In fact, he's probably Paul's personal physician and it might have been because of his sickness on his first missionary journey that uh, Luke joins him and been, has been with him on Paul's second missionary journey. Now, he's the other, he has a, one other interesting distinction. Of the 66 books of the Bible that are written and a number of different authors, he's the only Gentile author in, in the Bible. 
in, to write a book of the Bible, and that's Luke. So he kind of gives up his private medical practice, and he maybe becomes kind of this prototype medical missionary that we see today. Then we come to the eighth guy, Demas. Now, Demas is mentioned, there's no context here that says this is a negative thing, right? You just see the name Demas, and he's one of the guys. So something goes terribly wrong with Demas from the point that Paul writes this book and what happens later in his life. And we find that out in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, and it says this, Make every effort to come to see me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We also see that mentioned again in Philemon, verse 24. So he's kind of the worldly deserter. And even if you have long-term friendships, there may be someone in your life that kind of just says, I'm done with you. Now, Paul doesn't beg him to come back, but he says, I got to have a replacement because Demas is gone. And the question I ask you is, how do we handle people who desert us, who kind of abandon us? Because in the Christian life, that's just not cool. And we're used to saying, can't we just all get along? But there are clearly times when people desert us and we feel abandoned. You know, when I do counseling, I think that comes up more often than I'm really realizing is how often I deal with people who have abandonment issues and it comes from mom or dad. The guys, we've been studying some stuff on men's fraternity about the father wound and absentee fathers, among other things. And so for some of us, the deserters in our life are not from the church. They're from our own family. And in fact, it's because of our family issues that oftentimes we have trust issues in the body of Christ. Some of you have issues with your earthly father. And so it's no wonder that you have trust issues with your heavenly father. And I see that pattern being repeated over and over again. The question is, why didn't Demas finish well? Well, we can only speculate. Maybe he's tired of playing kind of second fiddle to Paul. Maybe he's tired of living on a shoestring budget. Maybe he's one step away from martyrdom, and he's just tired of the stress. But we do know that little context that says there was a lure from the world that says that he's enticing him to cut his ties with Paul in Rome. And so his sad future makes me wonder, how do we prevent the Demas thing to happen in our church? How do we prevent that happening to one of you where you just kind of drift off and no one notices? I think this is something we got to work on, friends. Now, I realize that some of you have been in small groups from day one. You're going on year 17 in your small group. But there's a whole bunch of new people out here that have to be assimilated. So let me challenge you to think through something. Maybe some of you need to say, hey, it's time for me to leave the safety of that 17-year cocoon, and maybe we're going to venture out maybe with one other couple, and we're going to reach out to all these new faces and we're going to start a new group that we can be a part of and help them get assimilated. Right now, I'm counting up at least five couples who have been married in last year or will be married in the next year. They need to start a group. They need to reach out to that group. Some of you are mentors and need to be mentoring someone so that they don't have the Demas thing happen to them where they just kind of get lured away and you wake up one day and it was like seven months since you were at church last. Now, it's hard. You look around, but it's only one service right now, so you can kind of look around and say, oh, I wonder where so-and-so was. And I want to challenge you, that's not just an elder thing. That's not just a pastor thing. This is the body of Christ thing where we look out for one another and say, hey, I don't want a Demas to spring up among us because... They got lost in the shuffle somehow, that they got their feelings hurt, that they didn't, there wasn't clear communication, that we didn't at least make the phone call. So as I looked at these, these, these guys in this passage, I came to a conclusion. There are some characteristics. They embody multiple characteristics, each of them. And I want to just end with by saying there's a few things that if we're looking for a biblical, godly friendship, what should that look like? Well, number one, They've got to communicate openly, and you see that with these guys that Paul has. He will tell you about my activities. There's a willingness to share. 
communicate openly. And I wanted to tell you that there's a guy that, that, that has been that person with me on this staff. And I said I'd mention him again, but Chad, you've been that guy. There are times that you have insights that I go, wow, that is a deep drink of water. That's not surfacy. Now, we kid each other, and it's fun because he, he'll ask, is this a good time to talk? Because I know, get ready. Get ready. And we laugh about it, I think. Do we laugh about it? So sometimes I say, Chad, I just need to know the time, not the history of watchmaking. And that is not... And so we've come to that deal, and, and it works because I know that if I want to get a thoughtful response... He's the guy who will communicate openly. And sometimes that's hard because there's a lot in there and there's a lot to be shared. Number two, these kind of biblical friendships, they love you like a brother. They love you like a brother. And it's more than just winning a game. I have that guy in my life. His name's John Bynum. We've been best friends since we are in eighth grade. He was best man in my wedding. I was best man in his wedding. He is the guy who loves me like a brother. He's the guy who works for IBM and is just dying right now. I was the guy working for most of those years at great churches, and I had to be careful because he was in the world slugging it out, and I was just enjoying the good life being a pastor. Now, if you believe that, you know that I've got some land to sell you here out in the desert. Of course, our friendship is forged in the fact that we've gone through adversity together. One of the things that I know when someone loves me like a brother is they tell me the truth about my behavior. It's probably been 15 years ago now, maybe longer, where one time we were together and he looked at me and he said, he looked me right in the eye and he said, you know, sometimes I don't think you're listening to me. I said, what do you mean? Well, you seem to be really preoccupied. Like sometimes we're talking, it's like your mind is a million miles away. And I know you care, but it sure feels lousy when your head's not in this conversation. Now, that's a pretty gutsy thing to do. And what was my immediate response? I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to say, that, that's, that's more true than I want to admit. Anybody else tell me that, I'd probably have been defensive. But because he was my best friend, I realized I had to change the way I communicated. You know, it's hard for me. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, I try to get to several of you, and, and I know I've got to get, I've got to talk to these three people, and then, but two other people are in line before I can get to those three people. But it's something I've had to work on all my ministry career is stay focused and be in the moment with the people that you're with. Don't be looking to the next conversation. By the way, it helps me remind that. I've been wearing this thing for over a year now. It says, be present. It's a thing I got at a a conference about a year and a half ago, and it just kind of reminds me, hey, be in the moment with people. You don't have to talk to everybody, but when they have your attention, they've got your full attention. Number three, they're faithful in the hard times. That's the David and Jonathan relationship. They don't give up. Number four, they have a servant's heart. They serve alongside you. Now, it's hard to single out one person on the staff who's that person, but I'll tell you who's had the servant's heart for me. And he's sitting back there. His name's John Nungester. You guys have no idea what he's done behind the scenes in the last two and a half years. Now, I did annual reviews last week. You go, oh, man, that's got to be tough. No, I think it was a pretty cool day for our staff because I got to list all the things that they had done well that I'd seen them doing in my six months here. And as I looked at all that John has done, just in the calendar year 2012, I was blown away. It was a good time. And he serves faithfully. He serves as unto the Lord, and he has a servant's heart. By the way, I think all our staff do, but he gets the servant's heart award today. (laughs) Number five, Paul says, you know, a biblical friendship has to be based on reliability. 
Are they reliable? We've looked at that before. I've sent him to you for this very purpose. I wish Carolyn was in here. She's always out there, but she is probably the most reliable. Even when she's gone, she's, she's always on top of things. She always covers her area. She never goes like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. She's very reliable. Number six, they encourage and exhort you. They encourage you. They exhort you. Um, I think that um, those of us who have an encourager, we know Barnabas was the son of encouragement, but who is that person who is your encourager? If you are letter writers, please keep writing letters to your staff, to your elders, to your deacons, to your friends. There's something therapeutic about getting a written word of encouragement. Talk it's cheap, but the time to take to write that note is so impressive. You know, I've, I've applauded you before about that, but last October, getting all those different little notes, the gift cards are cool, but I mean, the notes were equally cool for me. Those written little words and all the sparkies, I mean, I, must have, I still have them, all these little cartoon or little coloring sheets and whatnot. Be an encourager to one another. You never know when someone in this church, that word of encouragement makes all the difference in how that week goes, how that day goes, how that month goes. And sometimes our, we suffer kind of in silence and we're kind of stiff upper lip. Let's not let the whole world in. But I know that some of you just need desperately to be watered with encouragement. You know, you have a person on our staff who's that person. Her name's Nancy. Nancy is incredible. I've told her all along, I'm not sure whether your long-term calling should be as an administrative assistant or just pastoral care and counseling because she is so, so very good with people. We get all kinds of odd requests, and it's amazing how she handles that with diplomacy. I'll just leave it at that. I won't go into... Because one of you might have been one of those odd requests. She's really, really good. She's such an encourager. Next, they suffer or they stick with you. What did I put up? They stick with you. Aristarchus is in jail. This is the person who has the knack of being there at the right place at the right time with the right word. Who is it you turn to when your true love goes to be with Jesus? Who is that person who sits with you in silence? Unlike Job's friends who gave him all kinds of advice and is there for you. Who's that person who sticks with you when you've lost a child? Who is that person who when your life falls apart helps you pick up the pieces? If we just did that one characteristic in this church, you couldn't contain the number of people who would flock to ABF. What did the New Testament say about those Christians? Oh, how they loved one another. I'm kind of glad that Scott's not all about fancy programs and you know, fog machines and high-definition lighting and, and all that. One of the things you're going to get with your new pastor is he's going to preach this word. He's going to live with integrity. He's going to love God wholeheartedly, and he's going to model a healthy marriage and family and encourage us to be in community together. We are always better together than we are apart. If you're new to the church and you go, oh my goodness, this sounds way too touchy-feely, like, do I have to open my mouth when I go to a small group? You can go and sit in that small group and not say a word for the first week, (laughs) maybe even the first month. No one will put a gun to your head. You don't have to talk, but I got to tell you, if you've been in a small group and it's been your lifeline in the past and you're not one in... One and now, you know what I'm talking about. It is so important to do the Christian life together. Who's going to stick with you? Who's going to comfort you? And lastly, who's going to pray with you and for you? 
All these guys were prayer warriors at some level. Who's going to pray with you and for you? The struggle on your behalf. Well, he wraps up the book with a conclusion. He says, give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. In his final exhortations, he says three things. Number one, circulate this letter among the believers. He's looking back and referring to the book of Ephesians, I think, and um, circulate that and this book to to the Colossians. Secondly, he says, complete what you started. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. Complete what you started. It's easy to start things, hard to finish things. We're on the tail end of a long race here at ABF. Next week, it's countdown to four weeks. And I'm going to begin a series called Great Expectations. But we've got to complete what we started. I have a little unfinished business with you, some of you. You go, really? What, what else does there do? We've got the pastor coming. Well, I think there are some things we can do to prepare for him coming, and that's what I'm going to address in the next four weeks. We're going to complete what we started. And then lastly, continue in grace. He says, continue in grace. Grace be with you. And he had a, he, his eyesight's bad, so he probably didn't write this whole letter. He had someone taking notes. It might have been Aristarchus. It uh, might have been Tychicus. But he's writing the greeting in his own hand. And he says, remember, his last words in the whole book is, grace be with you. I think it's instructive how people begin letters and end letters. And when he says, grace be with you, I think he's just reminding us again that even if our minds are set on things above, and even though we try to be heavenly focused, it is so easy to slip into judgmentalism, legalism, divisive, critical spirits. And he's saying when it's all said and done, if in fact you are focused on heavenly things, then you will extend grace to one another. When I finish teaching a book, it's like leaving a friend that you've been having a meal with every day. Every day for the last several months, my head has been in this book. And I was thinking, how do you wrap up the book of Colossians? I mean, if you took all those 15 different messages and all the different themes, I want to give you one resounding big picture idea as you leave this book. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's really been the theme of what we've been looking at these last several months. Chad's going to come and we're going to sing as we wrap up. But think about that. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You know, our tendency in the Christian life is to add to the gospel to say we've got to do this, we've got to do that, or we've got to be more like this. But i got to tell you, friends, as we go into this next season of ministry, isn't it really, when it's all said and done, about Jesus? I mean, I get emotional about that because he radically changed my life. And I don't get up here just to give history lessons. I do get up here from time to time to meddle with you, just a little bit, holy meddling. But most importantly, if I have done anything over the last several months, is to give you a hope that Jesus is everything and he's the only thing you ultimately need in this life. You say, yeah, but John, what about, no more whatabouts, no, no more what-ifs, no more regrets, no more looking over our shoulder about woulda, shoulda, couldas. Friends, Jesus wants you, and he wants all of you. Are you going to be all in, or you got kind of one foot in and kind of one foot out? None of this hokey-pokey Christianity. We're all in. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen? I'm not going to ask you to come forward. You don't have to kneel. 
But I would be remiss if this is another day for someone who is sitting here who's heard the gospel several different times in the course of the last four months. Maybe it's time for you to say, I give. Uncle, I need you, Jesus. Come into my life. Forgive me. Help me become the man or woman you've called me to be. And if that's you, then welcome to God's family. If you need someone to pray with you about that decision to yield your life to Christ, today is the day. Not tomorrow. Don't put it off. Not next week. And so I'm going to ask the elders to come and we're going to just stand up here. And whether you're coming for a prayer about giving your life to Christ or if it's just about something you want prayer for, they're going to just kind of line the sides of the church. I know it's hard. You go, oh, I don't want to self-identify. We've got to get over that because we are the body. You need friends. And if you've got something that needs praying for, let's pray for it today. Amen? Amen. That is our prayer. Are we really desperate for you or if we just filling our lives with things that are poor substitutes for knowing you and being surrendered to you. And so today, Lord, I put my hand out again with my palm outstretched, and I invite all of you in this room who are being led by His Holy Spirit to do the same. And Lord, as we put our palms outstretched in front of our, ourselves, we're saying, Lord, take us, use us, Use ABF to make a difference in this community and in the world and in our families and in our schools and in our relationships. May we be that godly fellowship for one another that we'd have these kinds of relationships that would grow and flourish here. And in the end, we realize it's all about you. And as we sing this one last time, that you would be lifted up that we would be desperate for you, that it would be Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Go in God's peace. Amen. Amen.